I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. Welcome to our 2018 Year in Review episode. We thought about calling it a best of episode, but that didn't really feel right. It's a review, a look back at year one of The Distiller. Every two weeks, uh, just about every two weeks, with one minor delay during the year, we've talked with different guests about their search for meaningful work, about how they found what they do or how the work found them. 52 weeks, 26 episodes, and yes, our most recent episode was number 27. That's because there was no episode 13. Episode 14 guest, Derek Dos Anjos, jokingly requested that he not be unlucky 13, so we skipped number 13. Just over a year ago, I sat down with my friend Justin Golden over beers to talk about our work. Maybe you have somebody in your life with whom you have that, what am I doing with my life conversation. It seems like Justin and I have that conversation about every couple years. And I've told this story before in the show, but it bears repeating because it's the story of how the show started. I asked Justin that day, if you knew everything you know about me, except what I do for a living, what would you guess I do? That question was an attempt to say, am I doing the right thing? Does what I'm doing make sense for who I am? And Justin did answer the question, and his answer confirmed for me that he knew me well and knew what I value and and that my life's work is headed in the right direction. His answers challenged me to try to continue to push my work closer to both the things that are important to me and the things I'm best at, the things that are closest to my heart and to my skill set. But Justin also said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want to hear you have the conversations you and I have with other people. I want to hear how other people think about their work and hear you ask the questions of them that you ask of me. And it was out of that conversation that the Distiller podcast was born. Since that time, like I said, we've recorded 26 episodes at 26 different locations, 32 different guests. The first episode came out December 16th, 2017, and that first episode featured Danny Corman talking about the end of his nearly a decade-long run owning the Green General Store Park and Vine and moving not only into new work but across the country to Colorado. That conversation was recorded at the Anchor in Cincinnati's historical Over the Rhine neighborhood. Since that first episode, format hasn't really changed much. The core of our approach, real conversations largely unedited with people in real places, has remained consistent. So this show isn't a best of. It is a year in review. It's an uneven compilation of some of my favorite moments from our first year. Chosen kind of at random. We're not trying to bring everything in or have clips of every show. Apologies to those guests or locations who may not be represented here. Some of the best conversations, frankly, just wouldn't be reduced to a clip or a soundbite, like that first conversation with Danny Corman, or seeing the tears well up in Libby Hunter's eyes when I asked her whether she has mentors for her work and her relating that her two mentors had both passed in the last year. But where possible in this show, I just wanted to look back and remember some of my favorite moments from our first year of shows. There are a lot of different things that make a conversation memorable. We posted recently on social media and asked people what their favorite moments were from the first year, and we got some great responses. Certainly one of my favorite things about the show is when a guest's response completely catches me off guard. Like, for instance, and unsurprisingly, Dom and Judy Lopresti, owners of Spun Bicycles. I talked to them in our second episode, and we started out talking about the value of great customer service, but quickly went in a direction I absolutely did not expect. 
I hate hard sales and people who would just want to sell a bike they have on the floor yeah. to get it out. You know, that's we not what we do. We see it a lot. A lot see of people. Lot. We see a lot of people. They come walking in with a bike that obviously was sold to them because it was on the floor. It might not fit them. Sure, it fits yeah. you. No, it doesn't. Yeah, you just wanted it off your floor. And this this one poor lady had been riding this road bike and and killing mileage on it on a bike that was two sizes too small for her. Yeah. And she was she was assured oh, this is the right size for you. And I actually had um, one of Judy's old carbon frames that had very low mileage on it, and I gave her a cherry of a deal on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was two sizes bigger. She's like, are you sure this is going to fit me? I'm like, this is the size bike you're supposed to be riding. Yeah, and feel the difference. We build it up, and she's like, oh, my God, my neck pain's gone away instantly. My shoulders. Crouched like, over, hunched over. Yeah, and yeah. she and now she's faster. She's more efficient, and, and I got a free pedicure out of it <laughs> awesome I did, not, I did not expect that story to go that direction <laughs> and i got butterfly pink wasn't it that's that's a, that's a, yeah it was an awesome color i love those guys and not surprisingly that remains our most downloaded episode of the year even though it was only our second Sometimes the unexpected answer has more to do with motivation. When I asked chef Derek Dos Anjos about what defines and sets him apart in his approach to running his restaurant, the Anchor OTR, I really expected his answer to be something about the things he learned starting out in the restaurant business in New York, or maybe something special in his menu, or how he creates such a welcoming physical atmosphere. But his answer, again, caught me off guard. What skill do you have that you have always had that you sort of bring to what you do that makes you successful? I'm compassionate. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I say really because that's not, again, that's not the answer. I, would, I might have expected drive or I might have expected no, like... No, I think at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of people that come through your door, employees or customers that have either had a bad day or things aren't going quite their way or, you know... Either you're gonna, they're going to sit down, order a plate of food, and have a, an experience that makes them feel better. On the back end of it, if, if it's an employee, you know, um, if you can develop a relationship with someone where you care for them, they're going to care for you, mm. and their work is going to be better, and they're going to produce what you tell them to produce. Right on. I love that answer. Our idea is pretty simple. The reasons why and how people do the work they do are always interesting. We spend enough of our time working that there's always an interesting thread to be found, even if that thread is dissatisfaction or disillusionment. One of the best places to start is how people got into the work they do. And maybe my favorite, how did you get into this moment of the year, was talking with poet Matt Hart, who teaches at the Art Academy of Cincinnati. Matt was describing the connection between singing in punk bands as a teenager, not that he's stopped, his band Never Knew just played the Northside Tavern down the road from my house a few nights back, so if you're into that, I encourage you to check out both Matt's poetry and his music. But anyway, Matt described one experience while in college that opened the door to a lifetime of creative work. And let me just say, as the host, anytime you get someone spontaneously reciting Etheridge Night on a Sunday afternoon in an empty bar on Cincinnati's west side, you know you're doing something right. And quick warning, if you're listening with the kids, the poem Matt recites contains some strong language. Just a warning. I went to college at Ball State in Muncie, Indiana. Mm -hmm. I studied philosophy because I couldn't figure out anything else I really wanted to study. Yeah. And while I was there, I took a poetry class. Um, and I took it on a lark because I thought it would help me write better song lyrics. I mean, the band was going strong at that point. 
this poetry class was really amazing and eye-opening to me, but there were these young guys in the class who called themselves the smaller Midwestern poets, uh-huh. and they would put on readings around campus. And I remember they put on this reading, and for whatever reason, they liked me, so they started inviting me to these things. And I went to one of them, and there's this young guy, he had a beard and a flannel shirt on, and uh, stood up in front of everybody and said, and he was all of like 22 years old, yeah. you know, and said, I've decided I'm no longer going to read any of my poems in public. I'm only going to read the work of other people. Tonight I'm going to read two poems by Etheridge Knight. This one's called Feeling Fucked Up. Uh-huh. And just launches into it. And I remember thinking, that's a poem? You can do that? Like, you can do that? Because, yeah. you know, the poem, that poem begins, Lord, she's gone, done, packed up and split an eye with no way to make her come back. Bright bone white, crystal sand glistens, dope death dead, dying and jiving. Drove her away, made her take her laughter and her softness and her midnight sighs. And then from there launches into this litany of FUs to everything but to Coltrane and alligators and birds in the sky and Nixon (laughs) and Mao and Nkrumah. And, And then at the very end, he says, you know, Fuck the whole motherfucking thing. All I want now is my woman back so my soul can sing. Oh, wow. And so, the, you know, the thing I responded to at the time was the sort of ferociousness of it, mm-hmm. the irreverence of it, the, the irreverence of the language, um, and, and, and the volume, the, the violence. The punk rock. The punk rock yeah. edge, right? But, you know, now it's like all these years later, and having studied poetry, like, it's a prayer. Lord, wow. she's gone, done left, done packed up and split, right? And, and at the end, it's this sort of plea for things to be, to be, to be righted, to, to, yeah. to have I just the, want her back. the beloved back, right? Yeah. So that whole, all that litany of FUs in the middle is somebody who's in total pain throwing a fit, yeah. Right. And stomping around. And you can actually hear like the clatter of that language, bright bone, white crystal sand glistens, dope, death, dead, dying and jiving, all those hard consonants, you know, banging around. And that just like it changed everything. Hmm. And the next day was the first time I sat down to try to write a poem without oh, yeah. a prompt, without anybody asking me to write one. Yours. And I've been doing that pretty much every day for, you know, 30 years plus. That's powerful stuff, and it still gives me goosebumps to hear Matt launch into that poem. And if it wasn't evident, he didn't have that written down. That's just inside of him. One of the consistent themes on this show is mastery. How do people get good at what they do, whatever their work? What's involved in learning a specific skill or a trade or art? And how do we go from novice to master in our field? I wondered, was there a common theme to that journey? Well, for tech entrepreneur Mark Bowles, the formula for success comes down to perseverance. Mark has been wildly successful as one of the founders of EcoATM and today is a startup consultant and angel investor in Southern California. It's easy to look at someone like Mark and think that his success is about a particular talent or insight that makes him successful. But Mark spoke really honestly about the value of perseverance, about the balance 
needed between the qualities that have contributed to his success and how those same qualities expressed differently can be the very things that might stand in the way of someone else's success. My success at this thing is just really a numbers game, and I'm a barnacle. I just stick with mm-hmm. stuff, and I have perseverance, and I go back and I'm not smarter than most people. I'm not uh, more technical or more, uh, you know, but I work really hard, and I stay with it like a barnacle. Uh, and that really turns out to be a lot of what separates uh, success from failure in this particular startup game because – uh, it is so harsh, like I said, and it bucks a lot of people off. And you just don't want to go do it again. Yeah. And I don't know any better. I just, you know, once I get strapped into the harness, I just pull against the leather until uh, something happens, right? Do you think that's just true of life? I mean, like, I, so I've experienced in the entertainment industry, you know, there's all these industries where there's these discussions of talent or intelligence or some X factor that's the differentia- differentiator between the people that make it and people that don't. And the older that I get, I actually think it has nothing to do with any of that. It's luck and hard work. It's luck and hard work. Exactly. And, and, and it sounds cliche. And when you say it, it doesn't really mean anything when people hear it. Like, oh yeah, luck and hard work. But it, but it really is the thing. And yeah. I don't even know how to say those words in a way that doesn't sound cliche where, where people are interested. Because I, f- I find myself saying, and it sounds self-serving to, yeah, I work really hard. But it's the truth. That, mm-hmm. that is the thing that separated me from way smarter people than me. Mm-hmm. That um, is I just, and, and there's also a fine line too, because uh, there's a really fine line between being a persevering, you know, hardworking, stick-to-it entrepreneur and just a totally irresponsible jackass, yeah. right? Because Where you can't listen to the, the all the factors that are yeah, saying no. Yeah, and sometimes it is time to give up. And, <laughs> you know, uh, and sometimes, you know, there's a balance with, you know, you, you've got other responsibilities. You've got your family and, and mm-hmm. you know, your, your, uh, all that. So you, you got to balance those things and it really becomes quite hard. And again, it's not for for everybody, but... Yeah, luck and hard work. Yeah, well, no, and it sounds like... It might seem a little strange to compare a technology entrepreneur to a guy who builds treehouses for a living, but my conversation with Mark Bowles does occupy a similar place in my mind as the time I spent with Django Kroner. Django is the founder of the Canopy Crew. Yes, Django builds treehouses for a living, and we had a lot of fun talking about the kind of whimsical nature of his business about the spiritual impact of being able to live and work in the forest canopy. But Django is also a businessman, much to his surprise these days. He's a small business owner who's had to learn the ropes quickly as he went along. And that process of dogged determination of belief in yourself is similar. Django spent his teenage years as a rock climber in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky, and he described the process of learning to run a business as analogous to solving a particularly challenging climb. Uh, Being an entrepreneur is so much more Mm. than I ever thought it could possibly be. Obviously, you kind of gravitate towards things that you're good at, Mm -hmm. and then you specialize, and then you get used to being good at everything that you do, because people don't challenge themselves that often. (laughs) With the Canopy Crew, I found myself repeatedly smacked down and, you know, kind of put in my place um, and that process is, it, it's endless, you know, cause businesses by nature grow mm-hmm. and when growth happens, growing pains occur. And then it's my duty to respond to those growing pains. So I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't, but you know, uh, in the beginning, certainly none, no zero idea at all. 
And I just approached it like I approached rock climbing. When I was rock climbing a lot, I was project climbing. So I would pick a really difficult route, just one path up one cliff, mm -hmm. and I'd spend a month working on it. So it would take 300 tries over a month of repeatedly going up and falling, going up and falling, and, and like, like a dance, you learn the exact precision moves until right. you get it, until you can get to the top without falling. So I understood the process of being really stubborn and like just not stopping and not giving up. And I understood the process of things happen once you stop trying to force them. Hmm. So whether or not you're supposed to apply those to business, I don't know, but I did. As a climber, I was always okay to be bold and take risks. And I loved being the person who would just go for it. And that's exactly what I've done here. And it's totally backfired a number of times, but it's also my one and only secret ingredient that has gotten me here. So plenty of people have like criticized that mentality or questioned it certainly i mean even in my own crew but the bottom i mean at the end of the day that's like all i that's just who i am we talked with a lot of creative people this year people who are adept at speaking about how and why the creative work they do impacts them as people when you ask someone why do you do what you do and they're really honest and reflective you get some truly arresting moments. And no discussion this year went deeper, faster, than my conversation with Rich Hordinsky and David Wilcox about their musical and professional collaboration that spanned 20 plus years. And there's no better example of someone who thinks deeply about the why of their work than singer and songwriter David Wilcox. I had to smile when I was talking to a singer-songwriter and she was saying, the real reason why people choose to be singer-songwriters is because it is so difficult to fling your soul out to a bunch of strangers and feel some people get it and some most people reject it. And the reason why that's a valid choice for a life is because what you get to practice is not trying to sell people on what you do. What you get to practice is digging a deeper well to know who you are that would not be required if you had a job that was something predictable. So the fascinating part about putting yourself in a vulnerable position to be criticized for your very personality, for your very essence, uh, is uh, a wise choice if you take it as intentional instead of it being an obstacle, instead of, boy, if I could only get everyone to like me. That's not the point. The point is, how can I... Wait, that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been doing it wrong. Can we, can we rewind? <laughs> so this woman was saying that the real beauty of the choice is that this side effect of strengthening your sense of worth apart from what other people think of you, is it gets exercised most of all. It's sort of like if you went into the weight room and you said, well, I'm here to move weights. Where do you want them? And they say, no, no, they just go up and down. You don't really move them anywhere. <laughs> really? Well, why, why are we doing this? Well, you don't change the weights. The weights change you. So I love that about the difficulty mm -hmm. of music, mm -hmm. you know, and 
Uh, so that to me is the real payoff. That's the part you keep. The part, the fact that it is humbling. It's a very humbling craft. In a similar way, piano technician and tuner Nevin Essex brought a deep thoughtfulness to our conversation. We talked about building a career in a field that is kind of limited. It's not growing. There aren't many people who do what Nevin does, and even fewer who do it with the experience and the care and the expertise that he brings to it. I asked Nevin when we spoke about his awareness of the landscape around him, about the decline of trades and craftsmen, and how that awareness shapes his sense of his work. But his response was another of these lovely surprises, a response filled with hope and magic and true love for what he does. Well, what I see is that a lot of, a lot of uh, craft people are being replaced by Home Depot and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. A, a lot of craft people go to work at Rockler and, and yep. you know, Woodcraft and places where they c can make, a, make something at least yeah. for their work. But I have to say, what I experience that's different, I think, is that our work is about what's in the imagination. Hmm. Music is in between your ears, right? Now, I know boat builders, well, yeah, the boat has to float. But when you go walk on a new boat that somebody just built, it stimulates your imagination. Yeah. If somebody builds a kitchen, yeah, you have to put pots and pans in it. But it's so beautiful that you just stand there and look at it in mm -hmm. awe. And what we do is, is about music, and music is very complex language. Uh, it's, it's the culture talking to its people, hmm. people communicating with each other in very subtle ways through music. And it's meant to be in your imagination. The whole purpose of it is to, right. to reach your imagination. So when I work on a piano, I, I can't just think of it as a machine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, uh, well, how do I say this? When I was a kid, you know, I would listen to my dad's Heathkit radio mm -hmm. and listen to the funny little sounds that the airport would send out, and ding, 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 and, uh, and it stimulated my imagination. I started playing like I was on a spaceship. It would, it would make me want to play with it. Well, you know what do pianists do? They play, right? Mm -hmm. So the sounds that this thing makes are meant to reach the imagination. And so I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about that. That's, that's, that's what I get up in the morning and go do. So try to make an instrument a, a part of your imagination. Yeah. Perhaps my single favorite conversation of the year was with Cincinnati photographer Michael Wilson. Partly because we met at Arnold's Bar and Grill, which just seemed like the perfect setting for the distiller. One of the oldest bars in certainly Cincinnati and in America. If I could wish for a permanent home for the podcast, Arnold's would probably it. But also, 
just because Michael is Michael, this episode was special to me. Michael's approach to his work is so wonderfully pure, and the way he talks about it is so beautiful and simple that I just got lost in our conversation. There are many moments of this year of talking about craft and about the specifics of how someone does their job. Talking with Michael about how he makes pictures, how he finds material, how he's chasing the work through more and less meaningful situations, he describes it all beautifully. Let's talk a little bit about how you work because um, I think my sense uh, originally was you get a commission. I mean, you've done a lot of studio portraiture, some Mm -hmm. of it on album covers and some Mm -hmm. of it not, but it sounds to me like just as much of your work is just wandering around the neighborhood yeah, taking a lot of photographs yeah, and and finding something beautiful. I think you're you're exactly right. And 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 the interesting word there is work. I mean, if um, it, it's like if photography is this sort of like thing I'm following, this shepherd I'm following, it's like it, it's, certain times I've found myself following that shepherd into places where I'm um, doing a dance that I'm paid to dance. You know. Mm. Other times I'm I am just like dancing for out of just because I'm so happy to be someplace, you know. Just like, you know, uh, and I think both are valuable things. Like, I, you know, uh, thank goodness there are like uh, firms in even in Cincinnati that maybe there will be uh, maybe they're financial advisors and they want someone to come in and make pictures of all their employees. And I go in and I'll do that and as honest as in as careful way I, as I can that's very <clears throat> yeah that that is work as a photographer but then but that's not I can't sustain that for very long without the moments that you were sort of describing where I am going and um, sort of like listening to the world you know just sort of like um, is that a practice that you have, is there any intention or rhythm to how many days no, a week you just go it, out with your camera? And no, and and sadly, um, the the there was a, um, there was a time when you you couldn't have stopped me from putting film in a camera and walking, mm. and now that is not the case. But I, once the film is in the camera and my feet are underneath me, and I'm on the sidewalk. I, I feel the same. I know this is what I do. So I have, over the years, I've used different artificial, I guess, um, architectures. Like I've um, walked certain streets. Like more recently, I've been photographing State and Beacon Streets on the west side of Cincinnati. And I will just walk, um, not to say anything about that neighborhood, but just it's a place I know and I can just... Unfortunately, sometimes people ask me to like sort of like uh, recently uh, a mutual friend, uh, Rich Hordinsky, has mm-hmm. um, asked me to sort of like sort of take that sort of sensibility to the neighborhood that he lives in, Walnut Hill. So I've just been and that that feels really good. I don't know if the pictures are any good, but I know that when I've been walking these streets and just it's this, you know, active listening, I guess, with your mm-hmm. eyes, mm-hmm. it it feels like. No one benefits from this, no, and if, but it's the, it, it feels like this is the one thing I do that makes sense. And it's, that's which is weird. I can't quite square those things. But like, why does the one thing that makes total sense to me, like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, no one benefits from this. 
That last statement, that even a photographer of Michael's ability with Michael's body of work feels deeply the tension between the work he loves the most and the work the world values the most, that is as simple and clear a picture of what we struggle with in our work every day as I could possibly paint. When you talk about meaningful work, there are a couple of different things that can mean. Of course, it can equal broader meaning or societal impact, and for some of our guests, it did. But it also has to do with work that's meaningful or fulfilling to us as we do it. Throughout the year, I've been fascinated to hear people talk about whether their work is meaningful to them and in what ways. And maybe my favorite moment of the show so far along this theme was talking with Megan Trischler. Megan is the project coordinator for People's Liberty. And I talked to her about what it means to be a creative. She's a visual designer and a deep creative force whose work is primarily about facilitating other people's creativity. Is that fulfilling to her or does it just highlight the areas of her own work that aren't getting enough attention? How does, um, because you are a creative person at heart, that's what you're trained in, yet your work right now is facilitating creative work from other people. Totally. How does that work for you? Do you feel like you are doing enough of your own work or are you just putting all that energy into making other people's creative dreams happen? Man, yeah, that is, you have really distilled uh, my, (laughs) one of my biggest challenges right now is that we are the platform for other people's creativity. And so my work is creating those spaces and those platforms for other people to do what they want to do. And I, in my heart of hearts, I'm a doer as well. So I would say that uh, I've developed a lot of side projects lately that I do outside of my nine to five, which I think has been good because it allows my nine to five to just be what it is and let it be that. And then um, I've been trying to do a number of other creative projects outside of work. Uh, Some of that's working with you know, other organizations in town and just sort of doing some fun stuff. Some of that is like I've been exploring sourdough bread baking for the past I love it. year, which has been an awesome, awesome little side yeah. project. So, yeah. So that's so fascinating because I think most people would say, oh, the nature of the work that you do is imbued with so much meaning. This yeah. must be all fulfilling for you. And to hear somebody who is working in a space that is so mission-defined say, the way I find my particular particular fulfillment is in my side projects. Yeah, totally. Because I think that at the end of the day, it is still like, it's still work. And I I don't find, I've never been able to be especially creative in that kind of structure, in the sort of nine-to-five office environment. I would presume most folks would, would, would agree with that or, you know, would also say, well, you need to find some... Find some space, both yeah. physical and time, to, to let your ideas go. And I think the challenge, um, again, in an office environment is almost every hour is sort of accounted for, right? Like we, yeah. that's my schedule, you know, it's a meeting, email, lunch, this, this, this. And to get, to be creative, to have ideas, like I need four hours of uninterrupted time. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I get much, I get many more ideas and things that I enjoy doing while I'm kneading bread or walking in the woods or just finding that space yeah. to do it. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, from the beginning, I didn't expect that. I thought that this would be, people's liberty would fulfill all of these different desires and needs. But I think it's in my letting go of that 
that I've actually allowed the work just to be the work mm. and not feel like I have to get every little thing out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not fair to the work for me to, to put that pressure. To do everything yeah, for you. Exactly. Let me just be what it is. I think when we started this podcast, I expected that the conversations with people like Megan would confirm for me that there are jobs out there that are so meaningful that people don't look elsewhere for their fulfillment. And I'm not saying they don't exist, But I am finding over and over again that nothing is what it seems, and even those who do work with the most apparent meaning from the outside still often struggle with issues of settledness and contentment, and that ultimately, it's very rare to find someone for whom their professional pursuits satisfy all their sort of personal, creative, or philosophical needs. I guess in retrospect, that's not that surprising, but it's been eye-opening to really see the picture develop over the course of the year. Like Megan, Bart Campolo makes his living, or at least spends his days, creating space for other people. Bart's job is probably one of the most unique professions we featured this year. As the humanist chaplain for the University of Cincinnati, Bart's job is to provide the guidance and the grounding that many students would seek in a spiritual or religious context, but without the underpinning of belief. Bart talked about who he tries to reach, about the misconception that he's trying to convince people not to believe in God, but what he's really trying to do is to convince non-believers of the value of deeper things and how we live our lives. The people I wanted to evangelize were not the Christian kids. I wanted to get kids that didn't believe in God. And I I said, you know, I used to say to a kid, like, so you think this life is the only one that you have? And he would go like, yeah. And I'd go like, so what are you going to do with it? And he would be like, I'm going to be an investment banker. And I'd be like, really? You have one brief moment of consciousness and you're going to make rich people richer? Right. I was like, there's so many better things you could do. And so I was trying to like get kids who are already secular to sort of buy into the wonder of life and, and, and buy into the notion that the way to make the most of your life was by building loving relationships and making things better for other people. We can put a lot of pressure on ourselves to only do work we love or feel passionate about, to only do work we feel we're good at. But like we said, there are different types of meaning. There's professional satisfaction and societal good. And then there's the type of meaning that only comes from investing in those you love and care about. That balancing act came through loud and clear when we talked with Liz McEwen about her decision to stay home with her kids, to be a stay-at-home mother and homeschool her kids. Liz defies a lot of stereotypes about the stay-at-home mom. She's extremely thoughtful about her choices and her motivations, and her relationship to meaningful work is instructive, no matter what choices we may have made. Liz was very candid about how and why she made the decision to stay home. We talked about the reasons why people would make the decision to homeschool and to stay home with their kids rather than to pursue a career. Um, And you're not doing it under duress. You're not doing it because you have, uh, I think some women do it Mm -hmm. because they feel shamed to not do it. Mm -hmm. They live in a tradition, um, whether it be a conservative religious tradition, Mm -hmm. whether it be a familial tradition that says... For whatever reason, no, this is the only thing that you're supposed to do. And if you don't love it enough to only do this, then there's something wrong with you. Well, and I think there's also this idea that, like, people believe that the women that are doing this, like, they had no other option. Right. Or there was nothing better they could do at their time. Or that they Or they didn't have the skills to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing better. Right. And, um, you know, sometimes I meet or I talk to friends who are kind of like, oh, yeah, I'd love to 
teach my own kids. I just don't feel like I could do it. And I'm like, well, I don't feel like I can do it either. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, like I'm not doing this because I think I'm like the perfect person for the job. Like I yeah. believe in this and yeah. that's why I do it. And I, and I think that's why it comes back to the idea of work because if we believe that motherhood and educating your kids and home keep homemaking and all that stuff is like frivolous mm-hmm. side work, mm-hmm. then who gives a rip who does it? Like hire it out, you yeah. know, assign it to somebody else. But if we believe that there's like something really important life-giving for a family for someone to be doing this mm-hmm. um then it doesn't matter what else you could be doing like you're still doing something important something valuable something that when you are you know 50 years old and somebody asks you so what'd you do with your professional career you yeah, can yeah. say like yeah. screw my professional career like i i took care of my family um and that's not to say that it's easy or that I ever feel like I'm qualified to do this, but I know I'm qualified because I have a family, and, yeah. and so I'm. Do you have, doing do you it. ever have second thoughts? Uh, I have second thoughts. Um, I mean, not necessarily. I think that if I could go back in time, I would probably do more preparation. You know, I. I always knew that I wanted kids, but I was not the kind of, of woman to like dream or fantasize about my family. Like mm-hmm. I've never, I've just never been that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as how that actually looked to like get married and have kids and raise them, like I had no idea what that yeah. would look like. Um, and so a lot of it really just has been like stumbling through it. Right. I mean, especially financially. I mean, geez, like I think you know, and a lot of this is the sign of the times, you know, I mean, the economy of our world is so different than it was when I was even a child that I think I just had no idea what it required to have, you know, for example, like a primary um, breadwinner mm-hmm. and a stay-at-home mom, like financially, the economics of that, how does that work out? All that stuff is like such a mystery and takes a long time to work through and is really hard. So stuff like that, I don't second-guess the decision. I just... I think like I had no idea how complicated it was. And then right. also just educating kids. Like I'm, you know, I'm not like, I love my children. Um, I enjoy, you know, most of <laughs> what we do, you know, but I am not like a particularly motherly person. Like I'm not, there's a whole lot about parenting that I was not prepared for. And yeah. so like the daily, there you are, weren't a, uh, I'm, I'm asking oh, this yeah, is the yeah. question. You weren't necessarily a woman that like had grown up taking a whole, care of a whole bunch of kids. And Mm-mm. then when it came to taking care of yours, you knew exactly oh, no. what no. you were doing. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's, there, I think I'm an intuitive person by nature. So I think thankfully hmm. I worked through a lot of those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's full of surprises, especially as, you know, I, I tend to be more of a introvert. I need a lot of time alone. Um, you know, being home with four kids, for it's not going well. Um, you know, but then you, I mean, even complicating it further with having a husband, I mean, geez, my kids aren't my only, Yeah. you know, yep. they aren't all that's there for me to, you know, be with. And so, so it's just, there's a lot of moving pieces, Yeah. you know, and, um, so no, I don't, I mean, I don't regret the decision to do this. I think I just had no idea mm-hmm. how ill prepared I was for it, you know, and thankfully, it's all, you know, kind of come together. I've known Liz for a while. Before she got married, we did a lot of shows together as singer-songwriters in Cincinnati. 
She's been pretty busy since then, but I knew she'd be honest and candid about her life and her decisions, and she didn't disappoint. And that's really the only qualification for being on The Distiller. You don't have to do something exciting. You don't have to be an expert or a master. You just have to have thought about your work to some degree and be willing to dig into it. The consistent candor of our guests is something I have treasured. So many people this year that I didn't know before we sat down together were completely willing to just open up and talk about their motivations and their satisfaction or lack of it and really investigate this idea of work. For instance, Corbin Bone, a professional soccer player with FC Cincinnati. Corbin and I had never met before our conversation, but he didn't hold back at all. When you examine the lifespan of a career, we've talked about the beginnings, how people get into the work they do. We examine how they pursue mastery, but for some careers, the horizon is always looming. A lot of my conversation with Corbin was about the challenges of being a professional athlete, including the inevitable end of a sports career. The fact that your career depends on your health and your fitness, two things that can change over time or in an instant. But we also talked about how you manage the mental and emotional concerns that might prevent you from achieving your peak. For Corbin, that balance, applying the lessons you only learn from time while still recognizing that time is a finite commodity, this is present in his mind every day. And these are lessons that are applicable no matter what we might do, that our mental state has a deep impact on the work we do and how we bring ourselves to it. And you mentioned it earlier, the one thing that I do try and provide at all times is that that willing willingness to work and, and the energy yep. and, and that sort of thing that you can't deny that I'm going to give you that every time I yep. kind of step on the field. And I think that's that's part of it is that journeyman approach. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me the way that you've matured um, as a player, but as a person over the course of your career is yeah. to see it as I'm here to work. I'm here to put the work in. Every day, I'm here to put the work in on the field. I'm willing to be the guy that goes out and raises the energy of the team because that's what we all need to right, succeed. Right. How has how has that part of it, the workman aspect of it, changed over the course of your pro career? Um, honestly, gratitude. Hmm. I uh, I've started to really be, because so many in years past, because so many times I was like thinking of quitting or should I quit or, or doing that. And then now being able to be humbled by the fact that, I mean, I have this journal and, and every day, usually when I wake up, uh, I write like, this could be the last practice of your life mm -hmm. because it could, that's, mm -hmm. I mean, not only practice, but day or whatever, you know, that goes into this existentialist thing or whatever, yep. but, um, uh, that this could be, whether it's injuries, whether it's, you know, anything, this could be it. And so that bleeds into, well, I'm going to work my hardest. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can that if, if this was my last practice, if this was my last game, that I would be happy with that performance. Yep. And so that's kind of, like you said, that came with maturity and kind of recognition and awareness of, of the limited time that I have with this game and, uh, and, and this life, really. And, 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 and I want to be proud. When I look back, you know, all that stuff I did when I was younger, I want to be proud of my soccer career. Yeah. And so... Um, that kind of bleeds into all those, man, this is This could be it. This could be the last one of the, of the day. This, you know, this next one that I have, this could be it. So I, I want to make sure that it's, and so working that hard to be proud of that, that's a, that's a big thing that I'm, that I'm, yeah. um, 
that I work towards, 100%. You talked a few minutes ago about um, the desire to give something to the world, that you think of your career uh, yeah. as, as what you're giving to the world. We talk about this podcast is um, about meaningful work, about finding meaningful work and finding meaning in the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Where does that desire come from for you? Because you're obviously, even in the way that you're talking about it right now, you've matured into a, a position of thinking about this yeah. in a larger way and thinking about it in terms of how this is meaningful to you beyond whether or not you you score on Saturday night. Yeah, 100%. I, I think for me, I, I've kind of learned and uh, taken in this idea that the mental side of the game is so much greater, uh, for me at least, than... than um, I, I guess I, sh I shouldn't say that. I sh practicing and as a youth player, practicing and and really honing on your skills is important. But when you get to a certain point, the mental capability or capacity of a person is where you're going to succeed for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the game changed. And so for me, I, I've tried and I've started to do this now is, and I want, and I'm a big advocate of it is the mental side of the game and the mental um, ups and downs that you can deal with uh, throughout a career and, and how that kind of can, can make or break you a hundred percent. And so uh, the, one of the big things is, you know, I, I did this speech of the day and I, I did three takeaways and one of the takeaways was overthinking. And this applies to soccer and, and everything really mm -hmm. is I went down this path for a long time, um, of, of overthinking where if I made one bad pass, I go down this rabbit hole of, Oh man, you made one bad pass. If you make another bad pass, Everyone's going to think you're bad. Everyone's going to, they're going to take you off the field. Yep. Then you're not going to play the next game. Then your career is going to be over. That's just classic overthinking. That's a slippery slope yeah, right there. 100%. Yeah. But that's the reality of overthinking because usually it has a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to, and you're going to end up someplace that isn't a reality, but you're there now and, right. and you're thinking it. So it, it, you made it into something real. Yeah. You're, you're, you're getting, you're willing yourself unintentionally exactly. into exactly. the place. And so when I realized, and the my, the breakthrough for me was when I became aware of that, I could actually shut that down inside my head. So saying that what I, what I want to um, give to the world or, or show is that you can be a soccer player, but also think outside of the mistakes or, or, or the highs and lows of the soccer game. You can actually um, kind of play with a free flowing mentality and, no matter what happens during the game, the outcome doesn't doesn't really right doesn't really matter. If 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 you can think positively, it's still going to be positive in the end. So it was a self discovery in a way. Mm -hmm. I, I became I started getting into reading, and so I started reading like self help books, if uh -huh. you will. And then I applied it to the soccer field, and I ended up becoming a, a better player because I could play, you know, free flowingly. I could play without fear, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. I, I think it honestly made me a better soccer player. Corbin talked about wanting to be proud of his pro career. It's really fun to be able to have these conversations and then see what happens afterwards. We recorded that conversation in May, about four games into the 2018 season. And a lot happened after that conversation. Corbin had a career year. He finished the season with 12 goals and four assists. FC Cincinnati was officially invited to join the MLS. And Corbin was one of only two players from that original FC Cincinnati squad who signed a contract with the team for 2019. Meaning that Corbin's going back to the big leagues, to Major League Soccer. If you listened to that whole episode about Corbin's journey from a college standout, a high MLS draft pick, and then disappointment after disappointment, 
the redemption of going back to the MLS at this point in his career after everything he's learned makes those lessons about mental approach all the more meaningful and inspiring. Congratulations, Corbin. We can't wait to see your MLS return in 2019. So inevitably, these conversations come around to the idea of following your passion. That's an easy thing to say. In fact, it's something that is, in a way, at the heart of this show. I often tell my friends, my father has only really ever given me two pieces of advice that came in the form of fully packaged tablets from the mountain sort of wisdom. One of those was, have kids while you're young enough to enjoy them. We're not going to touch that one here, but I have thoughts, believe me. And the other was, find something you love to do and then find a way to get paid to do it. A few years back, my dad and I were talking. We were having one of those conversations you only get to have when enough time has gone by that you are, as I was, about the same age that my father was when he first gave me that advice. And my dad asked me if I remembered him saying that. And I said, Dad, have you been paying attention? Just about every professional decision I've ever made has been trying to figure that out and live that out. And that really is why I started the show. But that idea expressed culturally as follow your passion is complicated. For guest Meredith Shockley-Smith, it meant moving from academia, where she thought she was where she belonged, where she stayed for years to get her PhD, only to find it wasn't the right fit, and take a job in the nonprofit sector for Cradle Cincinnati. Specifically, I loved talking with Meredith about her teenage daughters and how they view that transition and whether Meredith's risky move mid-career to follow her passion makes it easier to talk with her daughters about how to find work that's meaningful to them. So do you tell your daughters, um, has the conversation, and I don't know if you're having these conversations with them, they're 16 and 14, I don't know if they're thinking about what they're going to do, but when, when you apply this experience to them, do you, do you use the words, you know, do what you love and the money will follow, or is it more complex than that as you're trying to shape what they think they're capable of? It's really interesting. So I was mentioning both of them on different spectrums of, like, ways of engaging education. So the oldest, who is Sage and is 16, can sing like a songbird and people have told her and this sounds like I'm being the mom stage mom or whatever but people are like she has perfect pitch you know she should sing she should sing and she's like singing is not a thing I want to do like even though I love singing and I'm passionate about it she's like that isn't what people do like people are engineers people are like you know doctors and whatever so she's like I need to, I need to do this thing and I'm right. like you cannot, why would you want to be a doctor? You pass out literally at the side of blood. <laughs> or like, you know, an engineer would be on a computer sitting down all day and you want to be outside or whatever. So it's just like, these are the kinds of conversations that I think should be also happening in education where it's like, what are you good at? What do you yeah. love? Instead of like, here are the respectable jobs you can and should do. And yeah. then you try to fit yourself into that. And I find that that's how you get to a place of misery where you're like, I'm doing what I should be doing. And should be is never really... I mean, let me not say never. It's rarely I would imagine. Right. Also haven't researched that, but... Yeah. It's just like these boxes cannot possibly contain all of us. So I, I think we are having these kinds of conversations. Like, how do you think about passion differently? How do you think about work differently than what we're usually pushed into to thinking? Yeah. Which I'm working on in, my, in myself. I right. totally... I mean, like, I probably wouldn't finish my PhD if I followed my heart. Hmm. I would have walked away. I probably wouldn't have, you know, 
stayed in the university if I had followed my heart. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't know how to think about it differently at the time. Yeah. Like, I was like, this is the door, we're walking through it. So I, I would say take a pause and think about that. Yeah. Um, my son and I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show before or not, but my son and I talk about these kind of things. And he said to me a couple of years ago, in a moment of, of childhood brilliance, you know, everybody always says you can do whatever you want to do, but nobody's doing it. And that is brilliant. And yeah, and that ability to I feel like for everybody at any age, there is a need to be able to visualize something actually taking place before you can Absolutely. You know, and yeah, there's a woo-woo sense to that in terms of like bringing things to you, but there's also just the physical you can't do what you can't imagine. Um, and so somebody has to help you imagine something. Um, you know, somebody has to help, if she, if she were ever to do it, somebody has to help your daughter imagine that, a, that a, a, an income can be made and a life can be supported by singing. Um, so reasonable. And then, yeah. I mean, somebody said to her, like, there's only one Beyonce. And I'm like, yeah, we're not trying to be Beyonce here. I mean, there are millions of jobs, millions probably a stretch, but lots of jobs around music. It doesn't yeah. have to be that you are traveling star. Right. Um, yeah, so I, it's also new to think about what does it look like to do your passion. So that, that's a whole other conversation. Transition is a huge thread throughout the distiller. Transitions from one employer to another, from one job or career to another. In the same way that we talked about it with Meredith, that idea of being able to imagine something different, of hearing the minutia of someone's process and struggle, came through when I talked with Justin and Tasha Golden. Justin and Tasha recorded and performed for over a decade as the musical duo Ellery before crippling depression kind of decided for them that they wouldn't be able to tour anymore. That was a huge shift that required years to process and to work out and transition into the next phases of their lives. For Tasha, that's meant a PhD in public health that she's just now completing at the University of Louisville. For Justin, that meant transitioning into music and content production for television and producing albums and shows for other people. It's work that they both love now, but that clarity took a long time to develop. We talked about how easy it is to minimize the time and the internal work necessary for others to navigate big transitions. When you look at someone else's process from the outside, it can seem really easy. But it's really important to recognize the painstaking work and time and heartache that goes into shifting from one stream to another, and sometimes to reduce it down to the actual steps needed to move in another direction. And it's like the People Magazine article of your last 10 years <laughs> is, yeah. you know, is Ellery, what are they doing now? Right. Oh, Tasha's found her way in public health. Right. Justin's making music. Yeah. So cool. Like, <laughs> you, no, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's right. really easy to sort of like see the high points of your process and go, oh, it was it was easy. They followed their passions. It's like, no, that's not the way it happens. Yeah, no, not It happens with funny, intention and planning and hardship and having your dreams taken away from you yeah. in ways that you didn't want and weren't happy about and didn't invite. Yeah. And mourning and grieving for that. And then figuring out like what next and saying, oh shit, well, we gotta, we gotta pay the bills right. somehow. Okay, I'm gonna go get a job. Like the, it's really easy to look at somebody else's process and go, oh, well, it all works out. They followed their passion and it worked. It's so much more complicated yeah. than that. So much more intentional 
on your part. There was a lot of decisions, I think, that at the time didn't feel like a sure thing. No, no decision ever felt like a sure thing. Everything felt like kind of a vapor. And then two years later, we could look back and say, oh, I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Wow, neat. It's important to remember as we talk about meaningful work that the access to so-called meaningful work is different for different people. And even conceptions of what qualifies as meaningful work are different from person to person and even from culture to culture. If you're just trying to put food on the table, looking at following your passion is far from a primary concern. It's important to get those different perspectives. We talked with Melis Idawan, a first-generation American. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Turkey before she was born, specifically to give her and her brother a greater breadth of opportunity. In 2018, Mellis won a project grant from People's Liberty and the Hale Foundation. Remember back to Megan Trishler earlier in this show from People's Liberty. Mellis, with that grant, created Ruya Turkish Coffee House, an authentic Turkish experience in the heart of Cincinnati, as an homage to her culture and an invitation for others to experience its beauty. In her day job, Mellis works a corporate job at P&G. And we talked about the differences between those two experiences and specifically about the differences between the way she and many of her first-generation friends approach work, the different conceptions they had about why they were looking for work in the first place, and how they approached education leading up to finding those jobs. You told me that in college you had uh, a group of friends that were all first-generation yeah. Americans, yep. which makes sense because uh, your concerns were the same, your mindset might be similar. And I know you don't want to paint with an overly broad brush, but nevertheless, there's a lot that's common to your experience. As a group, Like, what is different about how you approached your education, how you approached the job market, yeah. and how you think about your job? Yeah. Are you conscious of having a different approach to your work than the people, than the perhaps more entitled people that you see around you? I mean, for me, university was a way to get a job. Mm -hmm. It wasn't this time period of finding myself or this time period to dilly-dally. Yeah. Um, whereas I saw a lot of maybe quote-unquote entitled Americans are like, oh, I don't know my major. And I'm like, it's, you're a junior. Figure it out. <laughs> like, what? You're wasting time. Clock is ticking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so... I just saw it as a way to earn money so I could pay back to my parents what they sacrificed and help support them. That first-generation perspective carried through to my conversation with Anne-Marie Herrera and Luis Laya. Anne-Marie and Luis are Venezuelan immigrants to the United States who fled Venezuela seven years ago for the safety of their family and their children. We talked about what they brought with them in terms of identity and values that, although they came with almost nothing else, kept them from remaining in poverty and fueled their search for meaningful work and their belief in their worth, their personal worth, despite the challenges of a language and a culture that was initially foreign to them. So you moved here and effectively you are, you are in poverty. You have support from your families, but you're both working low-paying jobs. Mm. And it sounds like reasonably quickly, I mean, I, it had to be agonizingly slow at the time, but you had your sights set on this job will get me to the next thing. What's the difference between the mindset that you had when you were doing those jobs and the person who's doing that job but can't imagine something else and can't, well, can't I, somehow envision something better? Yeah, I can, I, can, I can say two things. One thing is you have no option 
And you know the difference. You know, you know, you come from a mm -hmm. different thing, and you know that you can do it better. So okay. you will not stay on that in ba that bad position. And yep. the other one is imagination. Hmm. Nobody had had told me never. You can't do this. Right. Nobody. If somebody come come and say to me, you can't do that, I will say, Psh, watch me. I will do it. I will mm -hmm. do it. It sounds like one of the key elements that you just described is that you that you believed in yourself, that you knew what you were capable of, and that this experience didn't define who you were. And maybe it goes back to the fact that your work had never defined no. who you were mm -hmm. culturally. So mm -hmm. maybe that's one of the things that happens when you define yourself by your job is that if you don't have the job you lose that you want, you lose your you lose your identity. Mm -hmm. Were you ever tempted during that time to sort of? give up on yourselves? Did you ever doubt your capability then? No. Well, well we couldn't afford that. That's, that's the, the bare rea reality. We could not afford to give up. We have three kids in high school by that mm -hmm. time. They yep. needed support to get through and start college. Yeah. And that was a daunting experience. Imagine doing FAFSA for the first time <laughs> being a foreigner. Oh, yeah. I, I cried the whole, pro I still cry sometimes when I have to do it. I, I think still I cried do it. when I did it for myself. Oh my yeah. Taxes. The first right. time I had to Just do Just navigating all of these systems. I, I, I said, I'm dumb. I don't understand a thing. What? Nobody understands. No, that's yes, nobody. Yes, I realize that right. now. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I know. Specialists, they say they are specialists. They have a, no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we had no, 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 no choice. We, we had to go through, and we, know, we knew that one crappy job will lead us to a better one. Talking about work, about the idea of our work, is such a fertile and deep subject. And getting to have these conversations about once every two weeks with people is a privilege. Because I think as we build on these conversations, I am learning that we can't take it for granted. We shouldn't take it for granted because there are so many levels of meaning to the work we do. So many of these conversations inspired me, and none more than my conversation with my good friend Stephen Johnson-Grove. Stephen is a public policy attorney who's working to reform criminal justice policy in, in Ohio. Stephen does important work, work that makes a real difference in the lives of individual people every day. He's advocating for those who can't fight for themselves. If you're a podcast listener, you listen to maybe other shows, there are other shows, and you happen to listen to the third season of Serial, which came out this year as well, that season spent a year in the Cleveland courthouse. If you didn't hear it, I, I highly recommend it, but that setting is Stephen's world. Working for the folks profiled in that series, it's heavy work, but Stephen is a relentless optimist and a fighter for justice. So it's not surprising that when I asked Stephen about the concept of a life's work, he pulled no punches with his response and his characterizing of what's behind the challenges he faces every day in his work. So uh, the, the thing that's my life's work is to be cured of the addiction of whiteness. Um, whiteness is heroin. Even if you're a person of color, of course, you know that you've been affected by white supremacy and, uh, and the internalized oppression. But for that, that's less of my business to tell you about. For all the white people listening, uh, I'm here to tell you you're sick, uh, that you're uh, infected with this uh, perspective that um, it's really strange uh, because 
the sickness is to be told that you're excellent and normal all the time. Um, and the way that f- screws you up is that you realize you're not. You're not normal. You're not excellent. You screw up. You're kind of mediocre. You, you make mistakes. You, you, you hurt people. Uh, but every system around you keeps telling you you're fine and like keep going and do a little bit more of that. And so you're just like having this kind of schizophrenic uh, dis- dissonance between like every system, bank, banking, economics, employment, education, uh, faith, religion, everything, everything, everything is telling you you're the normal one. And um, that's a insane burden to carry and it will really screw you up as it has screwed me up and it takes a while to sort of realize that that's why you're having the problems you're having uh france fanon was an amazing writer and i encourage everyone to read him uh but one and i and i don't purport to be an expert at all but one thing that i appreciate from france fanon and others is to realize that like all the psychotherapy we put ourselves through only gets you so far if you unless you like grapple with like the social structures that are creating your psychological problems. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk therapy your way out of whiteness. Uh, you have to get engaged in deep s- transformative social change, even if it like feels like uh, enormous and unlikely to win and all that stuff. Like that's the only way you get better is to actually have one real relationships with diverse people, mm-hmm. uh, especially, uh, you know, to reverse the sickness, which is like whiteness is the norm and the good and the excellent and the top and the center and the lead and always in charge. And then by, you know, analogy, black is always the opposite. It is the bottom. It is the, uh, it is the marginal. It is the, the wrong. It Mm -hmm. is the bad like that, that lie. We eat, sleep, drink, and breathe everywhere we go every day. And so like walking upstream against that uh, is the only way to get healed and you can't do that privately. I mean, you need to do private work. You need to read and, and think. You know, you can't go around just asking everybody, like, what do I do? What do I do? Uh, but, like, that's, that's – so that's my life work. Uh, and it just l- takes the form of a lawyer working on a ballot initiative in Ohio. Yep. When we spoke very early in 2018, Stephen was just about to start the process of gathering signatures to get an initiative on the ballot in Ohio to reform prison spending, penalties for minor drug crimes, and to address the discrimination inherent in our prison system. That initiative did make it onto the ballot in November and was the hot political issue in Ohio in the 2018 elections. Unfortunately, it did not pass, but the groundwork that was laid, the conversation that was started, will continue and has continued to change lives, and Stephen remains in the heart of it. One of the things we talked about in that episode was a reading list that Stephen gave for educating yourself about these issues if you want to know more. And that reading list is still on our website on the page for episode five with Stephen. It includes Frederick Douglass, James Baldwin, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and more. And if you're interested, I invite you to listen to the whole episode and start working your way through that list as I have this year. That conversation with Stephen about his life's work dovetails perfectly with the time I spent with Cincinnati City Council member Tamaya Denard. As a gay black woman who was raised in poverty with a mother who was in and out of jail, Tamaya represents many of the most marginalized segments of our society. And when I say represents, I mean literally represents them every day as she sits on the council. It was important to me in the light of my conversation with Stephen about the pervasiveness of prejudice and about the huge need to educate ourselves about our hidden prejudice and privilege 
to speak with Tamaya about the forms of discrimination she experiences every day, forms that much of society, including myself, have a hard time even imagining simply because we don't walk in her shoes. It actually becomes almost subconscious because I'm so used to dealing with it. I've yeah. never not dealt with it, even talking about the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we raise a good amount of money, but African-American women don't generally raise money yeah. running for office. That's because we don't have the, the social capital. The network. The network to yeah. do so. So for me, I can't tell you, like, you know, how do you become aware? only thing I can say is listen, mm-hmm. uh, be open to understanding that um, there's varying degrees of privilege. Yeah. What I try to do in talking about that, because there's privilege that you have, but I also understand there's privilege that I have as well. Mm. You know, even though, you know, my mom was locked up, I still have my grandmother. There's still plenty of people who their parents go to, to, to jail or prison and they don't have anybody. Sure. So I always try to recognize what my privilege is. At the same, same time, I'm always looking to educate. Um, you know, when we did our swearing in this week, um, I had my red folding chair. Yeah, I was going to ring that up. And that was something that, for me, a lot of people, I, and I took advantage of the moment. I was in a room with people, some of whom knew who I was, some didn't. And I talked about, you know, when you're, uh, the only, when you're, when you're the majority in the room, if you're, everybody in the room is white, yep. that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I try to educate, uh, not berate or beat people over the head with it because, it, you know, they're going to cut you off and, and not listen. But if I go into a room uh, and it's full of people, at, let's say I'm going to Chamber of Commerce, and mm-hmm. I know just, you know, history tells me that room is going to be white men. Just yeah. because, you know, I don't, I have to talk about privilege, but I don't lead with that because mm-hmm. if I lead with that, even though it's true, mm-hmm. I can't lead with it because then the, the room will not listen to what I have to say. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I try to take advantage to educate. And at the same time, I'm always trying to be educated and learn because we've all evolved um, mm-hmm. in terms of our social awareness and our social consciousness. But my goal is always to educate. So I tell people all the time, I'm a, I love, I'm a social justice warrior. I love a good protest. But at the end of the day, is your goal to demonize or is your goal to move the ball forward? Is it to move the needle? And so if your goal is to move the ball, the, the ball forward or move the needle, then you are going to take a stance of education as opposed to just, you know, insults and telling people, you know, they're racist or they're bigots or, or whatever. So I think a lot about, you know, my approach mm-hmm. and, you know, how I say things, when I say things and, the, you know, the way I deliver things. There are so many more moments we could play, but maybe the most important thing at this point is to take a look at what we've learned in this first year of The Distiller, the perspective we're gaining through these conversations. I've chosen to end the show here with Stephen and Tamaya specifically because these conversations are increasingly political. Sure, they're fun, they're interesting, they're often inspiring, but they're also concerning when we realize that if we're going to talk about meaningful work, We can't do so without acknowledging that even thinking about meaningful work is a privilege that many people don't have when they're simply trying to put food on the table. And so that brings us to the close of year one of The Distiller. Looking back, I am so proud of what we've done, and maybe most of all, that that original idea, Justin's challenge to present these conversations and dig into these ideas about work, is really what we've done. Yeah, there are things we haven't really figured out yet. In particular, how to represent the perspectives that are harder to pull out, those of the disabled, retirees, marginalized voices. It's really important that we not eliminate these voices as we think about what meaningful work means in the context of today's America and today's world. And that's a goal for year two of The Distiller. And there's also the idea of 
How is this different in America than the rest of the world? How does the American conception of work differ from our neighbors? And what might we have to learn from them that could make us happier, more productive, more fulfilled personally and professionally? One of the inevitable results of talking with people regularly about their work is that you start to build a patchwork quilt that when you step back and look from a distance really is a picture of a collective vision and understanding of work and meaning, and we are starting to see that take shape. Finally this year, thank you for listening. There are a ton of podcasts out there, and a lot of them are really great. We, I, treasure that The Distiller has made its way into your life and that you're finding these discussions somehow meaningful as well. Thank you for listening in 2018, and I sincerely hope you'll join us for year two. We've already got a pretty great guest list taking shape for 2019, starting with a conversation with singer-songwriter Kim Taylor in the first week of January, so I hope you will join us. And don't forget, just because these interviews happened months ago, they're all still available on our website, on iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's the beautiful thing about this format. If you find a show you love, you can just go back like Netflix, and binge the whole thing. I hope you're finding some value, dare I say, some meaning in what we're doing. And I hope you'll listen in the year to come. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. We've had production and booking assistance this year from the wonderful Terry Heist, who's made everything run on time. Justin Golden not only provided that initial push of inspiration for the show, he also mixes and edits our shows from his home in Louisville, where he and Tasha live with their two cats. Justin is for hire for audio mixing and production for just about anything related to making stuff sound great. You can contact Justin through his website at justingolden.com. Scott Ryan designed our iconic logo. If you need design or logo creation experience, contact us through the website and we'll put you in touch with Scott. And our videos are created by my longtime friend and collaborator, Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. Likewise, if you're looking for animation or video expertise, I'd be happy to put you in touch with Mike. You can always find The Distiller and listen to any of this year's episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to make sure you're notified when new episodes are released. If you've enjoyed today's show or any of our shows so far, please leave us a rating or a review where you listen. That helps other people find out about The Distiller. And if you do want to help us out, Tell other people about The Distiller. One easy way is to follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Remember, you can also listen, download, subscribe, and find more information about every show, as well as a map of everywhere we've recorded an episode on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us to let us know how we're doing, to suggest a guest or a location, or just to say hi by emailing us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. But whether by email, through the website, or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, we always love to hear from you. Until next year, I'm Brandon Dawson. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.